page 5. Genesis 6. Of the Pew Bibles. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be one hundred twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's too much. It's a game on the price is right. And rather than try to explain it myself, I'll let Drew Carey describe the rules in this one-minute clip. <laughs> the game is called That's Too Much. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you numbers that look like the price of a car. And they're going to increase in value as we go. What I'm looking for you, Michael, is I'm looking for the number that's just over the price of the, of the Camaro. When you see that number, yell out, that's too much. And if you're right, you win the car. Got it, Michael? Yes, sir. Here we go. 19,910. Keep going. Keep going. 21,229. Keep going. Keep going. 22,560. Keep going. Keep going. 23,943. Keep going. Keep going. 25,384. I think one more, Drew. They always say just 26,800. That's too much, Drew. That's too much. That's too much. That's too much. 26,866. Manuela. Manuela. It is. You got yeah! it. What a car. Yeah. How far can I go without going too far? For we also want to go just a little bit further. Just a little bit further. Let me just keep on going until we find that we have gone one step too far. I believe that's the story of Genesis chapter 6. The wickedness of man became a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more until God said, that's too much. Let me offer you just a, a, a free bit of advice with no extra charge. And that is, instead of asking ourselves, how close can I get to the dangerous edge? Why not ask, 
where is the safest distance away from the edge? I found that, and we don't have a lot of it here in Chase County, but waterfront property sells at a premium. But waterfront can become underwater in a matter of moments. The mudslides of California are notorious for taking homes with them. And often it is too late before a homeowner realizes that's too close. A year ago, my family vacationed in the Wisconsin Dells. But in 2008, the dam was breached and waterfront homes on Lake Delton got swept down the Wisconsin River. We've seen it in our own community. The waters of the cottonwood rise and recede almost as quickly, but in many cases, irreparable damage has been done before the waters recede. In today's text, Genesis chapter 6, the flood of wickedness has swept into humanity to the extent that God determines it is time to wash away those who have crossed over the limit, and it is time to start over. Last week, we studied the different paths that define humanity and legacies that were left of generation upon generation. And this week we are giving just one snapshot of the progression of these legacies. And Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, tells us about the spread of humanity. God had commanded Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. As a matter of fact, humanity was commanded to spread. As they were spread, as they were spreading, the intent was that the image of God that was input into both Adam and to Eve, that that image of God would spread and that the image of God would multiply. But what developed was not a distribution of the image of God. It actually became a diluting of the image of God, as God's image upon man became less and less over the generations. I kind of like what James Walton wrote in his commentary, that what we see in the early chapters of Genesis is a progression. He says, if Genesis 3 represents the fall of humankind, in Genesis 4 we see the fall of the family, And I've inserted in Genesis 5, we're introduced to the remnant of those who remain faithful. Then in the first verses of Genesis 6, it addresses the fall of society. Individuals fell, families fell, and society falls. It's the next step away from God that is demonstrated here. And the snapshot we see is an institutionalized oppression of some sort. Verses 2 and 4 describe what has happened in the family tree of Cain and Seth. And what I've noticed as we looked at the family tree of Cain, the family tree of Seth, I see that holiness is a decreasing value. 
holiness is not as important as it used to be. Because man is not thriving on holiness, man is increasing in his appetite. I want what I want, how I want, when I want, and that's the way it's going to be. So rather than man who is meant to partner with God in God's purpose for the earth, man is now seeking to satisfy himself and his own appetites. Now, there are three phrases in these first four verses that we need to understand if we're going to figure out what God is trying to tell us. The first is the phrase, the sons of God. And we have many different translations of Bibles that you have in front of you, and some call these angels, some call these sons of the gods with a small g, and some call it the son of God with a capital G. And because there are so many different translations and ideas, um, the commentators say, well, some people think that these sons of God are angels. But angels don't have bodies. And so if angels don't have bodies, they can't marry the women of earth. And it doesn't seem to fit the purpose of Genesis that somehow angels would interpose in this place. A second approach to who are these daughters and and sons is, they say, well, the males are simply the descendants of Seth, and the females are the descendants of Cain that we saw back in chapters 4 and 5. And that the descendants of one family intermarried with the descendants of another family. But we don't see the daughters of men referred to in this way anywhere else in Scripture. Now, if you understand the language of Hebrew in the Old Testament in ancient antiquities, sometimes they referred to the royal lineage, the king, the princes, the princesses, as sons and daughters of God as if their king were a god. And so some read this sons of God as the sons of royalty. And that the sons of royalty intermarried. And, well, what's wrong with that? Because polygamy is not prohibited. Some believe what happened is that the royal men were exercising what historically has been called jus prime noctis. That is the right of first night. It was an abusive way that royalty would impose themselves upon the peasants. And to try and communicate this appropriately for this environment... Jus prime noctis, the right of first night, was a principle that entitled someone from the royal family personal alone time with the bride between the wedding and the honeymoon. That's crazy to us. It was practiced in the Middle Ages in Europe. It was communicated in the Epic of Gilgamesh that was written 2000 B.C., 
It was described by Heraclides Ponticus on the Isle of Cephalonia in the 5th century B.C. But I never learned about it until I watched the movie Braveheart for about the fourth time. And at the beginning of the movie Braveheart, this rite of first night is what caused the peasants to rise up against the king. And I believe that's what this is talking about. That the royal family was imposing their way upon women in a way that treated women with disrespect and with disregard. Because those who intended to be the image of God were now desiring the image of Eve. They were worshiping the creation rather than the creator. Rather than allow woman to be who God created her to be as a partner with God, she has now just become a physical attraction. For we see in the second part of verse 2 that these men took as their wives. Wives were intended to make man better. We saw earlier, it's not good for man to be alone, so God gave man, woman, to accomplish God's purpose in the man. God intended for woman and man to be lifelong partners. That's why he created Eve back in chapter 2. But whatever happened to these sons and these daughters, by the time we get to chapter 6, it has become degrading to women. And this degrading behavior is neither the key to a happy wife, which leads to a happy life, nor does it make for a happy spouse that leads to a happy house. What happened here is that by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, instead of being a co-image bearer, women have become nothing but temporary objects of desire rather than lifelong partners in righteousness. The men said, hey, she looks good. I want her. Women were valued purely for their physical attractiveness, not character, skills, godliness, her own intelligence. We also need to understand who were the Nephilim. We're introduced to them in chapter 4, and immediately we have the question, who were the Nephilim? They're only referred to one other place in the Old Testament. And fortunate for us, by the time we get to the end of chapter 4, the question, who are the Nephilim, is answered for us. The Nephilim were simply exceptional human beings. They were the heroic ones of renown. And whoever these sons were who were carrying on with these daughters, the resulting offspring were the heroic, mighty celebrities. Celebrity is not only a problem for today. We look at those who are celebrities, those who are influencers, and we wonder what is so admirable about that person. 
And here, all the way back in Genesis chapter 6, rather than look for godliness, rather than look for personal character, rather than look for quality, the people were simply saying, now that's a fine example of humanity. He's big, he's tall, he's buff. That's the kind of man that man ought to be. The problem with celebrity is that fame does not always spring from the most noble attributes. How much do we see politics influenced not by the smart, but by the famous? Not by the godly, but by those who daddy puts in the places of influence. And just as we see powerful people positioning their offspring... What happened here in Genesis chapter 6, these Nephilim, these descendants who were the tall, good-looking, notable, heroic ones, became the object that was worth replicating. See, the problem that is highlighted, I believe, here in verse 4, is that the heroes are not the godly ones. The heroes are simply heroes because of human qualities. The very same problem that the Israelites will have when they name their first king. They chose the tall, handsome guy instead of the smart, godly guy. And when we get distracted and we turn away from godliness and turn towards what is human, we actually have a description of that in front of us. It's a description that grieves God. See, God never takes pleasure in his wrath. His wrath causes grief, according to verse 6. But God's wrath cannot be ignored. He saw that mankind is simply making celebrities and influencers out of ungodly people. And God says, that's not the path for humanity that I planned when I created a good earth. And while God makes an extreme response, the extreme response cannot be ignored. He cannot overlook the wickedness among men. If a homeowner, a realtor, a structural engineer becomes aware of erosion and pending damage, but remains silent or does nothing, we look very poorly about that person who sees a bad situation and does nothing. We may even hold him or her liable for not intervening. The discovery of black mold in the house, asbestos, radon. We simply can't ignore these things after we see them. And God cannot ignore wickedness after he notices it. He can't ignore it, but God grieves as he observes the deadly spreading mold in his good creation within his image bearers, and he must mediate the situation. 
So the first thing he does is in verse 3, he slows the spread of the wickedness. While a 120-year lifespan may seem exceptional to us, if we compare it to the 900-year lifespan of the pre-flood patriarchs, this is but a breath compared to what they used to be. They used to have 900 years to spread their filth. And God says, not anymore. After 120, they're done. I just can't allow that stuff to spread any faster, any quicker. So God limits the length of time that men will be able to propagate their exploitation of women. How, now, so God wants to slow the spread because the spread is a contagion that is serious. How serious is the contagion? What, what is the extent of the problem? I think verse 5 gives a pretty good indication of how God viewed humanity at this time before the flood. The wickedness is great. I see it everywhere. The only thing man thinks about is, and he does it continually. You see the verse there? The Lord saw that wickedness was great in the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is not the extent of a problem that will be solved by a quick coat of paint and new flooring. In remodeling talk, this one is going to need to be stripped to the studs with all new mechanicals. The only way God is going to get rid of this wickedness is to go back to the core. But even in the core of humanity, even though God sees all this wickedness, God is still abundant in his mercy. Because verse 7 tells us God is about to give humanity a do-over. Now, commentators go on for pages trying to figure out the meaning of the word grieve. Did God repent? Was God sorry? Did he not step in sometime when he should have? What does it mean that God regretted that he had made humanity? The first thing I notice is this word grieve is not an, an overly emotional one. It's not the idea of beating his chest and bawling, oh, I'm so sorry I made mankind. It's simply God saying, man is messed up and I can't allow it to continue on. Only once in my life did I try to mold clay on a potter's wheel. How many of you have tried to turn clay? Did your experience turn out better than mine? <laughs> I sure hope so. Because the only time I tried to turn clay, I believe it was in seventh grade art class. And rather than start with a lump of clay, we were told to roll snakes and then to stack the snakes out of the clay before turning on the wheel and then smoothing out the edges. Now, I think it's probably because I, I tend to be a perfectionist, but it never failed that after a few rotations of the wheel, my tube began to look more like the Leaning Tower of Pisa. 
And the only option, once the tube starts going this way, is to mash it down and start again. And that's the regret, the sorrow that God had. He says, this has become so wicked, it's time to smash it down and to bring it up again. Well, maybe you haven't turned clay. How many of you know how to knit? You know, with the long needles and the yarn and... See, knitting's not near as popular as pottery. But I knew some of you were knitters. There was one time in my life when I thought I would try knitting. After all, what's more manly than a 14-inch sharpened stick? The problem is that mom would show me the process, then she would let me do it for a while before checking back on me. And sure enough, every time she checked back after I had been knitting for a while, there, she found some time that I knitted when I should have purled, or I purled when I should have knitted, and I still don't know what the difference between a knit or a purl, but I did it, and the only solution was to unravel yards and yards worth of yarn to get back to where the mistake was, and then to start over again. Now, I didn't boo-hoo, oh, you're undoing all of my knitting. <sighs> I simply acknowledged it can't keep going on this way. The only way to fix this is to go back and to start again. God, being full of mercy, said, I'm, I'm going to start again. See, my work with clay my attempt at yarn did not leave me as an emotional wreck. It was simply admission that a do-over was necessary. And the do-over in those situations, fortunately, was done by somebody else. But God says it's time for a do-over. But even in the midst of recognizing the do-over, God extends favor. In verse 8. While my attempts at pottery and knitting led me to find other interests, namely music, God does not give up as easily as I did. Even while he was scanning over how horrendous things had become, God noticed Noah and he determines a do-over is better than just destroying it and walking away. How many times do we mess up and then give up? But even though man had messed up, God sees something redeemable. After the legacy of Cain's descendants, he notices the descendants of Seth. While observing the wickedness of men and their mistreatment of women, he notices one family that he can work with. I can work with Noah, his sons, and their wives. And while mankind is heading in a direction that requires correction, rather than God giving up, God determines, like someone who flips houses, that with a little demo and some intentional effort, a remodel is worth the energy. So how do we take this story that man needs a do-over to 2022? I do believe that all Scripture is profitable. So how do we take this snapshot of wickedness and God's response to their wickedness? I think there are four things quickly for us to learn from these verses. The first is corrupt leaders corrupt their society. 
just because the sons of the gods or the sons of the palace began to act wrong was no reason to ignore it. While earthly courts may recognize diplomatic immunity, God does not. Morality matters in leadership because leadership leads the majority and people mirror their leaders. We must select moral leaders, we must hold our leaders to moral standards, and we must model morality whenever we find ourselves in leadership. The wickedness among the sons of the gods had permeated to all men at all times, and we must be on our guard against declining morality. The second thing that is relevant to us is that God does not ignore wickedness. Sometimes he diverts, as he did with the curse on Adam and the ground, as he did when he diverts our punishment to Christ. Sometimes God delays God's pronouncement in chapter 6, verse 7, until the flood starts is a hundred years, give or take 20. We haven't begun to taste the wrath that will be poured out in the future in the book of Revelation. But now, God is delaying His judgment. Just because He diverts or delays does not mean that He is ignoring it. For diversion and delay are not dismissal. God is aware of wickedness, and so must we. Thirdly, God extends favor to those who are righteous when surrounded by wickedness. Just because it's legal to do something doesn't mean we ought to do it. Just because something is legal doesn't mean we have to do it. For God extends favor to those who are righteous within a surrounding of wickedness. It was nearly 150 years ago that Philip Bliss penned a short gospel song that continues to challenge us today. The refrain of that song says, Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. God needs us to stand up. In a world where wrong seems right, God is looking for Noah's. In a world where evil reigns, God is looking for Daniel's. In a world where gender is fluid, where debauchery is on display, where morality is marked, God is looking for you. Because God extends favor to those who are righteous when surrounded by wickedness. And fourth and finally, the world calls us to YOLO. You only live once, so take a walk on the wild side. Get as close to the edge as possible. I actually read by Kirby Lynn Shedlowski, who said, and she's on staff at the Grand Canyon National Park, she says, on average, two to three deaths per year, are from falls over the rim. 
because people ignore the warning signs and they want to get as close to the edge as possible. Two to three people per year lose their life. See, we don't take a walk on the wild side. We don't live recklessly. I may seem old-fashioned. I may seem a stick in the mud. I may seem like a Bible thumper to you or a Frankie no fun. But rather than flirt with the dangerous edges of that's too much, which then activates God's wrath, how about if we decide to anchor here and now in Christ, in righteousness? How about we totally avoid the that's too much by staying in the center of God's will? Our song of...